This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Stephanie Vaughn's story, Dog Heaven. I came to on the grass with the dog barking. Wake up, he seemed to say. Do you know your name? My name is Duke. My name is Duke. Dog Heaven was published in The New Yorker in 1989. In 1994, it was included in the Vintage Book of Contemporary American Short Stories, which was edited by Tobias Wolff, who chose the story for this month's podcast. Tobias Wolff is the author of two memoirs, This Boy's Life and In Pharaoh's Army, the novel Old School, and many short stories, ten of which have appeared in The New Yorker. His most recent book, Our Story Begins, New and Selected Stories, was published earlier this year. Hi, Toby. Hi, Deborah. So Stephanie Vaughn published four stories in The New Yorker in the late 70s and 80s. They were collected 18 years ago in her book Sweet Talk, and as far as I know, she hasn't published anything since then. I saw that she was a Jones lecturer at Stanford when she was working on some of the stories. Did, did you know her back then? I met her. Uh, Stephanie came to Stanford just as I left, so we were not here at the same time. But before I ever uh, met Stephanie Vaughn, I had encountered her work in The New Yorker and this beautiful, beautiful story, a classic, I think, called Abel Baker, Charlie Dog, and continued to follow her work with just the greatest interest, just really classic stories. She's now a professor of English and creative writing at Cornell. But as I said, I don't think she's actually published anything since that book back in 1990. Do you have any idea why? I can't be sure. I know she has been working on a novel. I have actually read parts of it myself. What I read was absolutely wonderful, beautiful. I think she's just an absolutely extraordinary writer with her own tone and her own subject. Yes, we should probably mention that five of the stories in Vaughn's collection, including Dog Heaven, are told from the point of view of the same narrator, who's called Gemma, who is uh, growing up on the military bases where her father is stationed. Exactly. I haven't encountered anywhere else this very submerged world of the children of soldiers, that very, very unique culture that they inhabit, uh, these frequent moves, these attempts to find community when they know they're only going to be at a place for a little while, and the strange kinds of bonds that hold them together. She's brought a world to life in these stories that I think is, is, is new to most of us. We'll talk more about the story later in the program. Now, here's Tobias Wolf reading Dog Heaven by Stephanie Vaughn. Every so often, that dead dog dreams me up again. It's 25 years later. I'm walking along 42nd Street in Manhattan, the sounds of the city crashing beside me. Horns, gear shifts, insults. Somebody's chewing gum holding my foot to the pavement when that dog wakes from his long sleep and imagines me. I'm sweet again. I'm sweet-breathed and flat-limbed. Our family is stationed at Fort Niagara, and the dog swims his heavy red fur into the black Niagara River. Across the street from the officer's quarters, down the steep, shady bank, the river, even this far downstream, has been clocked at nine miles per hour. The dog swims after the stick I have thrown. Are you crazy, my grandmother says, even though she is not fond of dog hair in the house, the way it sneaks into the refrigerator every time you open the door. There's a current out there, she says. It'll take that dog all the way to Toronto. 
The dog knows where the backwater ends and the current begins, I say, because it is true. He comes down to the river all the time with my father, my brother, MacArthur, or me. You never have to yell the dog away from the place where the river water moves like a whip. Sparky Smith and I had a game we called knockout. It involved a certain way of breathing and standing up fast that caused the blood to leave the brain as if a plug had been jerked from the skull. You came to again just as soon as you were on the ground, the blood sloshing back, but it always seemed as if you had left the planet, had a vacation on Mars, and maybe stopped back at Fort Niagara half a lifetime later. There weren't many kids my age on the post, because it was a small command. Most of its real work went on at the missile batteries, flung like shale along the American-Canadian border. Sparky Smith and I hadn't been at Lewiston Porter Central School long enough to get to know many people, so we entertained ourselves by meeting in a hollow of trees and shrubs at the far edge of the parade ground, and telling each other seventh-grade sex jokes that usually had to do with keyholes and doorknobs, hot dogs and hot dog buns, nuns, priests, preachers, school teachers, and people in blindfolds. When we ran out of sex jokes, we went to knockout and took turns catching each other as we fell like a cut tree toward the ground. Whenever I knocked out, I came to on the grass with the dog barking, yelping, crouching, crying for help. Wake up, wake up, he seemed to say. Do you know your name? Do you know your name? My name is Duke. My name is Duke. I'd wake to the sky with the urgent call of the dog in the air, and I'd think, well, here I am, back in my life again. Sparky Smith and I spent our school time smiling too much and running for office, we wore mittens instead of gloves, because everyone else did. We made our mothers buy us ugly knit caps with balls on top, caps that in our previous schools would have identified us as weird, but were part of the winter uniform in upstate New York. We wobbled onto the ice of the post rink, practicing in secret, banged our knees, scraped the palms of our hands, so that we would be invited to skating parties by civilian children. You skate? With each other, we practiced the cool look. Oh, yeah, I mean, like, I do it some. I'm not a racer or anything. Every morning, we boarded the army green bus, the slime green, dead swamp, algae green bus, and rode it to the post gate, past the concrete island where the MPs stood in their bulletproof booth, Across from the gate, we got off at a street corner and waited with the other army kids, the junior high and high school kids, for the real bus, the yellow one with the civilian kids on it. Just as we began to board, the civilian kids, there were only six of them, but 18 of us, would begin to sing the artillery song with obscene variations one of them had invented. Instead of over hill, over dale, they sang things like over boob, over tit. For a few weeks, we sat in silence watching the heavy oak trees of the town give way to apple orchards and potato farms, and we pretended not to hear. 
Then one day Sparky Smith began to sing the real artillery song, the booming song with caissons rolling along in it, and we all joined in and took over the bus with our voices. When we ran out of verses, one of the civilian kids, a football player in high school, yelled, Sparky is a dog's name. Here, Sparky, Sparky, Sparky. Sparky rose from his seat with a wounded look, then dropped to the aisle on his hands and knees and bit the football player in the calf. We all laughed, even the football player, and Sparky returned to his seat. That guy's just lucky I didn't pee on his leg, Sparky said. Somehow Sparky got himself elected homeroom president and me homeroom vice president in January. He liked to say, in actual percentages, I mean in actual per capita terms, we are doing much better than the civilian kids. He kept track of how many athletes we had, how many band members, who among the older girls might become a cheerleader. Listening to him even then, I couldn't figure out how he got anyone to vote for us. When he was campaigning, he sounded dull and serious, and anyway he had a large head and looked funny in a knit cap. He put up a homemade sign in the lunchroom, went from table to table to find students from 7B to shake hands with, and said to me repeatedly as I walked along a step behind and nodded, Just don't tell them that you're leaving in March. Under no circumstances let them know that you will not be able to finish out your term. In January, therefore, I was elected homeroom vice president by people I still didn't know. Nobody in 7B rode our bus. That gave us an edge. And in March, my family moved to Fort Sill in Oklahoma. I surrendered my vice presidency to a civilian girl, and that was the end for all time of my career in public office. Two days before we left Fort Niagara, we took the dog, Duke, to Charlie Battery, 14 miles from the post, and left him with the mess sergeant. We were leaving him for only six weeks until we could settle in Oklahoma and send for him. He had stayed at Charlie Battery before when we visited our relatives in Ohio at Christmas time. He knew there were big, meaty bones at Charlie Battery and scraps of chicken, steak, turkey, slices of cheese, special big dog bowls of ice cream. The mess at Charlie Battery was dog heaven so he gave us a soft, forgiving look as we walked with him from the car to the back of the mess hall. My mother said, as she always did at times like that, I wish he knew more English. My father gave him a fierce, manly scratch behind the ear. My brother and I scraped along behind with our pinched faces. Don't you worry, the sergeant said. He'll be fine here. We like this dog, and he likes us. He'll run that fence perimeter all day long. He'll be his own early warning defense system. Then we'll give this dog everything he ever dreamed of eating. The sergeant looked quickly at my father to see if the light-hearted reference to the defense system had been all right. My father was in command of the missile batteries, in my father's presence, no one spoke lightly of the defense of the United States of America, of the missiles 
that would rise from the earth like a wind and knock out, knock out, the Soviet planes flying over the North Pole with their nuclear bombs. But Duke was my father's dog, too, and I think my father had the same wish we all had, to tell him that we were going to send for him. This was just going to be a wonderful dog vacation. Sergeant Mosley has the best mess within 500 miles, my father said to me and MacArthur. We looked around. We had been there for Thanksgiving dinner when the grass was still green. Now, in late winter, it was a dreary place, a collection of rain-streaked metal buildings standing near huge, dark mounds of earth. In summer, the mounds looked something like the large, grassy mounds in southern Ohio, the famous Indian mounds, softly rounded and benignly mysterious. In March, they were black with old snow. Inside the mounds were the Nike missiles, I supposed, although I didn't know for sure where the missiles were. Perhaps they were hidden in the depressions behind the mounds. Once, during Fact Monday, in Homeroom 7B, our teacher, Miss Bintz, had given a lecture on nuclear weapons. First she put a slide on the wall depicting an atom and its spinning electrons. Do you know what this is, she said. And everyone in the room said, An atom, in one voice, as if we were reciting a poem. We liked Fact Monday sessions because we didn't have to do any work for them. We sat happily in the dim light of her slides through lectures called Nine Chapters in the Life of a Cheese. First the milk is warmed, then it is soured with rennet. The morning star of English poetry. As springtime suggests the beginning of new life, so Chaucer stands at the beginning of English poetry. And who's who among the butterflies? The monarch, Danaus Plexippus, is king. Sparky liked to say that Miss Bintz was trying to make us into third graders again, but I liked Miss Bintz. She had high cheekbones and a passionate voice. She believed, like the adults in my family, that a fact was something solid and useful, like a penknife you could put in your pocket in case of emergency. That day's lecture was, What Happens to the Atom When It Is Smashed? Miss Bintz put on the wall a black-and-white slide of four women who had been horribly disfigured by the atomic blast at Hiroshima. The room was half-darkened for the slideshow. When she surprised us with the four faces of the women, you could feel the darkness grow, the silence in the bellies of the students. "'And do you know what this is?' Miss Bint said." No one spoke. What answer could she have wanted from us, anyway? She clicked the slide machine through ten more pictures, close-ups of blistered hands, scarred heads, flattened buildings, burned trees, maimed and naked children, staggering toward the camera as if the camera were food, a house, a mother, a father, a friendly dog. Do you know what this is? Miss Bint said again. Our desks were arranged around the edge of the room, creating an arena in the center. 
Miss Bintz entered that space and began to move along the front of our desks, looking to see who would answer her incomprehensible question. Do you know? She stopped in front of my desk. No, I said. Do you know? She stopped next at Sparky's desk. Sparky looked down and finally said, It's something horrible. That's right, she said. It's something very horrible. This is the effect of an atom smashing. This is the effect of nuclear power. She turned to gesture at the slide, but she had stepped in front of the projector, and the smear of children's faces fell across her back. Now let's think about how nuclear power got from the laboratory to the scientists, to the people of Japan. She had begun to pace again. Let's think about where all this devastation and wreckage actually comes from. You tell me, she said to a large, crouching boy named Donald Anderson. He was hunched over his desk, and his arms lay before him like tree limbs. I don't know, Donald Anderson said. Of course you do, Miss Bint said. Where did all of this come from? None of us had realized yet that Miss Bintz's message was political. I looked beyond Donald Anderson at the drawn window shades. Behind them were plate glass windows, a view of stiff red oak leaves, the smell of wood smoke in the air. Across the road from the school was an orchard, beyond that a pasture, another orchard, and then the town of Lewiston, standing on the Niagara River, seven miles upstream from the long row of red-brick colonial houses that were the officers' quarters at Fort Niagara. Duke was down the river, probably sniffing at the reedy edge, his head lifting when ducks flew low over the water. Once the dog had come back to our house with a live fish in his mouth, a carp. Nobody ever believed that story except those of us who saw it. Me, my mother and father and brother, my grandmother. Miss Bentz had clicked to a picture of a mushroom cloud and was now saying, And where did the bomb come from? We were all tired of Fact Monday by then. Miss Bentz walked back to where Sparky and I were sitting. You military children, she said, you know where the bomb comes from. Why don't you tell us, she said to me. Maybe because I was tired, or bored, or frightened, I don't know. I said to Miss Bintz, looking her in the eye, The bomb comes from the mother bomb. Everyone laughed. We laughed because we needed to laugh, and because Miss Bintz had all the answers and all the questions, and she was pointing them at us like guns. Stand up, she said. She made me enter the arena in front of the desks, and then she clicked the machine back to the picture of the Japanese women. Look at this picture and make a joke, she said. What came next was the lecture she'd been aiming for all along. The bomb came from the United States of America. We in the United States were worried about whether another country might use the bomb, but in the whole history, of the human species only one country had ever used the worst weapon ever invented. On she went, bombs and airplanes and bomb tests, and then she got to the missiles. 
They were right here, she said, not more than ten miles away. Didn't we all know that? You know that, don't you, she said to me. If the missiles weren't hidden among our orchards, the planes from the Soviet Union would not have any reason to drop bombs on top of Lewiston Porter Central School. I had stopped listening by then and realized that the pencil I still held in my hand was drumming a song against my thigh, over hill, over dale. I looked back at the wall again where the mushroom cloud had reappeared and my own silhouette stood wildly in the middle of it. I looked at Sparky and dropped the pencil on the floor, stooped down to get it, looked at Sparky once more, stood up, and knocked out. Later, people told me that I didn't fall like lumber. I fell like something soft collapsing, a fan folding in on itself, a balloon rumpling to the floor. Sparky saw what I was up to and tried to get out from behind his desk to catch me, but it was Miss Bince I fell against, and she went down too. When I woke up, the lights were on, the mushroom cloud was a pale ghost against the wall, voices in the room sounded like insect wings, and I was back in my life again. I'm so sorry, Miss Bince said. I didn't know you were an epileptic. At Charlie Battery, it was drizzling as my parents stood and talked with the sergeant, rain running in dark, tiny ravines along the slopes of the mounds. MacArthur and I had M&Ms in our pockets, which we were allowed to give to the dog for his farewell. When we extended our hands, though, the dog lowered himself to the gravel and looked up at us from under his tender red eyebrows. He seemed to say that if he took the candy, he knew we would go. But if he didn't, perhaps we would stay here at the missile battery and eat scraps with him. We rode back to the post in silence, through gray apple orchards, through small upstate towns, the fog rising out of the rain like a wish. MacArthur and I sat against opposite doors in the back seat, thinking, of the loneliness of the dog. We entered the kitchen, where my grandmother had already begun to clean the refrigerator. She looked at us, at our grim children's faces. The dog had been sent away a day earlier than was really necessary. And she said, Well, God knows you can't clean the dog hair out of the house with the dog still in it. Whenever I think of an army post... I think of a place the weather cannot touch for long. The precise rectangles of the parade grounds, the precisely pruned trees and shrubs, the living quarters, the administration buildings, the PX and commissary, the non-denominational church, the teen club, snack bar, the movie house, the skeet and trap field, the swimming pools, the runway, warehouses, the Officers' Club, the NCO Club. Men marching, women marching, saluting, standing at attention, at ease. The bugle will trumpet reveille, mess call, assembly, retreat, taps through a hurricane, a tornado, flood, blizzard. Whenever I think of the clean, squared look of a military post, 
I think that if one were blown down today in a fierce wind, it would be standing again tomorrow, in time for reveille. The night before our last full day at Fort Niagara, an arctic wind slipped across the lake and froze the rain where it fell, on streets, trees, power lines, rooftops. We awoke to a fabulation of ice, the sun shining like a weapon, light rocketing off every surface except the surfaces of the armies, clean streets, and walks. MacArthur and I stood on the dry, scraped walk in front of our house and watched a jeep pass by on the way to the gate. On the post, everything was operational, but in the civilian world beyond the gate, power lines were down, hanging like daggers in the sun. Roads were glazed with ice, cars were in ditches, highways were impassable. No yellow school buses were going to be on the roads that morning. This means we miss our very last day in school, MacArthur said. No goodbyes for us. We looked up at the high, bare branches of the hard maples, where drops of ice glimmered. I just want to shake your hand and say so long, Sparky said. He had come out of his house to stand with us. I guess you know this means you'll miss the surprise party. There was going to be a party, I said. Just cupcakes, Sparky said. I sure wish you could stay the school year and keep your office. Oh, who cares, I said, suddenly irritated with Sparky, although he was my best friend. Jesus, I said, sounding to myself like an adult, like Miss Bentz, maybe, when she was off duty. Jesus, I said again. What kind of office is home goddamn room vice president in a crummy country school? MacArthur said to Sparky, What kind of cupcakes were they having? I looked down at MacArthur and said, Do you know how totally ridiculous you look in that knit cap? I can't wait until we get out of this place. Excuse me. MacArthur said, excuse me for wearing the hat you gave me for my birthday. It was then that the dog came back. We heard him calling out before we saw him, his huge woof woof. My name is Duke. My name is Duke. I'm your dog. I'm your dog. Then we saw him streaking through the trees, through the park space of oaks and maples between our house and the post gate. Later, the MPs would say that he stopped and wagged his tail at them before he passed through the gate, as if he understood that he should be stopping to show his ID card. He ran to us, bounding across the crusted, glass-slick snow, ran into the history of our family, all the stories we would tell about him after he was dead. Years and years later, Whenever we came back together at the family dinner table, we would start the dog stories. He was the dog who caught the live fish with his mouth, the one who stole a pound of butter off the commissary loading dock and brought it to us in his soft bird dog's mouth without a tooth mark on the package. He was the dog who broke out of Charlie Battery the morning of an ice storm traveled 14 miles across the needled grasses and frozen pastures, through the prickly frozen mud of orchards, 
across backyard fences in small towns and found the lost family. The day was good again. When we looked back at the ice, we saw a fairyland. The red brick houses looked like ice castles. The ice-coated trees, with their million dreams of light, seemed to cast a spell over us. This is for you, Sparky said, and handed me a gold-foiled box. Inside were chocolate candies and a note that said, I have enjoyed knowing you this year. I hope you have a good life. Then it said, P.S., remember this name. Someday I'm probably going to be famous. Famous as what? MacArthur said. I haven't decided yet, Sparky said. We had a party. We sat on the front steps of our quarters, Sparky, MacArthur, the dog, and I, and we ate all the chocolates at eight o'clock in the morning. We sat shoulder to shoulder, the four of us, and looked across the street through the trees at the river, and we talked about what we might be doing a year from then. Finally, we finished the chocolates and stopped talking and allowed the brilliant light of that morning to enter us. Miss Bentz is the one who sent me the news about Sparky four months later. Boy drowns in swift current. In the newspaper story, Sparky takes the bus to Niagara Falls with two friends from Lewiston Porter. It's a searing July day, a hundred degrees in the city. So the boys climb down the gorge into the river and swim in a place where it's illegal to swim, two miles downstream from the falls. The boys Sparky is tagging along with, they're both student council members as well as football players, just the kind of boys Sparky himself wants to be, have sneaked down to this swimming place many times, a cove in the bank of the river where the water is still and glassy on a hot July day, not like the water raging in the middle of the river. But the current is a wild, invisible thing, unreliable, whipping out with a looping arm to pull you in. He was only three feet in front of me, one of the boys said. He took one more stroke, and then he was gone. We were living in civilian housing not far from the post. When we had the windows open, we could hear the bugle calls and the sound of the cannon firing retreat at sunset. A month after I got the newspaper clipping about Sparky, the dog died. He was killed, along with every other dog on our block, when a stranger drove down our street one evening and threw poisoned hamburger into our front yards. All that week I had trouble getting to sleep at night. One night I was still awake when the recorded bugle sounded taps, the sound drifting across the army fences and into our bedrooms. Day is done, gone the sun. It was the sound of my childhood in sleep. The bugler played it beautifully, mournfully, holding fast to the long, high notes. That night I listened to the cadence of it, to the yearning of it. I thought of the dog again, only this time I suddenly saw him rising like a missile into the air, 
the red glory of his fur flying, his nose pointed heavenward. I remembered the dog leaping high, prancing on his hind legs the day he came back from Charlie Battery, the dog rocking back and forth from front legs to hind legs, dancing, sliding across the ice of the post rink later that day, as Sparky, MacArthur, and I played Crack the Whip, holding tight to each other, our skates careening and singing. You're AWOL! You're AWOL! we cried at the dog. No school, the dog barked back. No school. We skated across the darkening ice into the sunset, skated faster and faster, until we seemed to rise together into the cold, bright air. It was a good day. It was a good day. It was a good day. That was Tobias Wolfe reading Dog Heaven by Stephanie Vaughn which was first published in The New Yorker in 1989 and was collected in Sweet Talk. It's also included in the Vintage Book of Contemporary American Short Stories, edited by Tobias Wolfe. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead, Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. Toby, a lot of your writing, fictional and non-fictional, has dealt with life in the military. Do you see any of your own experience echoed in this work? No, I don't. And I think that's one of the things that draws me so strongly to it is that here I lived on Army bases for four years from the time I was 18 until the time I was 22. Granted, the last year uh, I was in Vietnam, so I wasn't on an American base. But Stephanie Vaughn in these stories of hers brings to life a world that uh, I knew nothing about, and yet I was living right next to it. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the, 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 the home life of these officers, the the lives their children led. I had not a clue what that was like. These stories came to me really as, a, as an illumination. And isn't that really what f- the best fiction does to us? In fact, we're always living next door to worlds that we don't suspect. And the best fiction suddenly illuminates that thing that's been beside us all along and makes us see it for the first time and makes us enter another world. And she just does that so beautifully with this story. One of the things that's surprising to me is, you know, it's set on a military base. You expect there to be soldiers everywhere. And yet this this base seems sort of like a big wonderland for children. You know, the adults are absent and these kids are sitting around eating chocolates and skating and playing with the dog. The parents only sort of pop in in little snatches and then disappear again. 
the adult life is sort of a shadow on this story, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Uh, Miss Bintz, uh, the way she stands in front of the light projector, we sense that terrible mortal world enclosing them, that bullying use that Miss Bintz uses of these slides. And you understand what this innocence is sort of sitting on top of and, you know, this possibility of devastation. She's using power herself in a very, very brutal way. Mm-hmm. Even the way light is used in this story, I think, is interesting. When the, when the power lines are hanging down encased in ice, they're like daggers. Yeah, there's, a, there's a lot of weapon-related uh, imagery here. Yes, and often around light. And, of course, you know, as, as the girl understands, coming from this background, light is, is what allows everyone to see and creates beauty, but it is also the source of this terrible devastation. One thing that sticks out for me with the story is how Vaughn keeps toying with our expectations. You know, from the very title, you're expecting the dog to die. Yeah. You get that very first scene of the dog going in the current and the grandmother warning her, and you expect the dog to drown, and the dog doesn't. That's right. But we know how powerful that current is, and then when Sparky gets caught. And Sparky, of course, has a dog name. Yes, exactly. It's such a, such a funny symmetry to it all, and yet she's, she manages to set you up for it while you think you're expecting something completely different. Absolutely. Why do you think that uh, that Vaughn starts the story the way she does with those first two paragraphs of the dog dreaming her up and Vaughn as an adult walking the streets of Manhattan? Why not just start with the girl? That's a good question. I don't know how to explain that. I've always liked it. Yeah. Uh, it's whimsical. It captures a certain tone. You have a story here where now and then the dog seems to speak and there's something whimsical about that. And the dog has a very powerful reality in the story, and I kind of love the idea of her seeing herself as part of the dog's imagination. Mm-hmm. I love when he's, he's affirming his own existence, you know, I'm Duke, I'm your dog. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I love those scenes. That great scene when the dog is bounding back and stops mm-hmm. and wags his tail <laughs> to the sentry as if presenting his ID. It very much rings true because every time he's gone there with grown-ups, they've had to stop, you know. And, exactly. And so he knows, he knows he has to stop there. And the other thing, too, that I love in her phrasing here that goes with the beginning, I think, of the dog dreaming her up is that the dog finds the lost family. Mm-hmm. You know, the dog's not lost. The family's lost. And <laughs> it's that shift of, of perspective that is so uh, so touching and funny there. There's an, another shift in the story that stands out to me as an editor, which is the, the tense shift. She has the opening scene with the dog in the river in the present tense. Right. And then Sparky's drowning is also in the present tense. Yeah. All the rest of the story is in past tense. And right. it links those two, two yeah. things, doesn't it? Maybe in recalling Sparky's death in the end and in present tense uh, is a sign of how close that still is to her, how immediate that death still is to her. Yeah. It's also, it's one thing she has to imagine. She didn't see it. That's true. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, most of Vaughn's stories were published in the 70s and 80s, which was more or less the Raymond Carver era of the short story. Do you think that she was influenced by him in any way? Actually, no. They're distinctly unlike his stories. For one thing, Ray's stories typically had very little uh, expository material in them, very little background, Mm -hmm. very little history of the people involved. When she began publishing her stories like Abel Baker, Charlie Dog, 
uh, Ray would have just had the one book out, mm-hmm. Will You Please Be Quiet, Please? Right. And that was a very kind of bare-bones, stripped-down style, and it gained its velocity by paring away the kinds of things that Stephanie Vaughn really luxuriates in in this story, a kind mm-hmm. of, you know, full-throated descriptions and uh, a sense of the history of the characters, uh, a leisurely procession through the narrative. You know, it's a different kind of story. It's interesting. Actually, she reminds me somewhat of Laurie Moore. It's the way she sort of combines comedy and irony with these the terribly sad moments. Exactly. There's a tremendous sense of fun in this story. Yeah. Well, the the very ending of the story reminds me, actually, um, of the ending of, of your story, Bullet in the Brain. It's this three-time repetition of a phrase while remembering something from childhood. This moment that was perfect, and at the same time it has it echoing away, fading away, so you get this sort of awful nostalgia for it while it's still happening. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I never thought of that. Probably Stephanie's ending entered my writer's DNA in some way and, and, <laughs> and took this other form. Well, thank you, Toby. Oh, it's, it's been a pleasure, Deborah. You can read Tobias Wolff's most recent story, Awake, in the August 25th issue of The New Yorker or online at newyorker.com. Tobias Wolff's latest book is Our Story Begins, New and Selected Stories, published in hardcover by Knopf and in paperback by Vintage. On a previous fiction podcast, you can hear T.C. Boyle reading and talking about Wolf's story, Bullet in the Brain. You can download that podcast and more than a dozen others at newyorker.com or in the iTunes store. Just type New Yorker into the search bar. You can also download the weekly audio edition of the magazine through iTunes or audible.com. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by newyorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.